Happy Easter to you, and I am so jacked up that you are here to celebrate with us this weekend, uh, regardless of why you're here, and I say that because this is my 37th straight year, talking about not having a life, this is my 37th straight year of speaking on Easter weekend. Yeah, that is not something you clap for, people. You pray for me, okay? But I have learned a couple of things over 37 years of Easter service. Here's the first one. Some of you don't want to be here. I mean, let's be honest. And that's okay. I mean, there are weeks I don't want to be here, okay? I started this church 25 years ago. And there, I mean, I don't want to be, the whole fall, for example, I don't want to be here in the fall. I want to be at the football games with you guys, right? So I get it, not wanting to be here. But regardless of why you're here, I'm glad you're here. Some of you are here because, hey, you promised your mom you would go to church on Easter. That's admirable. I mean, give yourself a pat on the back. Some of you are here because somebody said, if you go to church with me, I'll take you out to eat. You know, that's just frugal. That's just smart thinking right there. And some of you are here because a cute girl asked you and you thought you might get a date out. That's brilliant. Don't feel guilty about that. But regardless of why you're here, uh, we're glad that you're here. The second thing I know is that you're probably not that interested in hearing me give you my sales pitch about, about why I think Jesus can change your life. In fact, you're here, you're kind of like when Laura drags me to a timeshare presentation. You guys cheap like we are. When we go on vacation, we go so we get a free gift, maybe get to go out to dinner or something, right? And we kind of have our strategy before we go in. Don't talk, don't ask questions. Let's get out as quick as we can. Don't commit to anything. And that's what you're thinking about right now, being in church on Easter. Don't talk, don't ask questions. Let's just get out quick. Don't commit to anything. But we don't care. We're just glad you're here. But I am gonna do my best over the next few minutes to explain to you why I believe that Jesus can change your life. And if at the end of our time together, if you still don't believe that's the answer, that it doesn't work for you, like I don't really get this Jesus stuff, let me just say this. You owe it to yourself to leave here immediately and go to Fuquay Verena. And when you get there, find the Aviator restaurant, you'll spot it, it always has a goat or two out front there in Fuquay. And go in the Aviator and find this waitress. Now let me tell you why I put her picture up there. I was there a few weeks ago with a few couples celebrating a birthday, and one of the men wanted to order a beer. Now I don't get that, I don't like beer, but he wanted to order a beer, and uh, she came out with that beer, and I asked her if it was okay if I took her picture, and she said, she said this beer will change your life. I'm like, wow. That's good beer. I mean, I've been telling people for years it was Jesus. <laughs> and you're saying it's that beer. So I doubt it. I doubt it. But you know what? Over the next few minutes, if this doesn't work for you, you kind of owe it to yourself. Go to Fuquay, try it. Maybe that's the answer. But I'm going to try to convince you over the next few minutes why maybe Jesus is the real deal. Why maybe he is the one that can... Uh, allow you to live the life that deep down inside you want to live, you know what you want to live. So, a few weeks I'm going to be in Israel. I'm taking about 50 people from here on a trip and uh, it should be on your bucket list if you've never gone. Save up, put money aside, quit going to the beach so much, quit going to Starbucks much, and, and go to Israel. There's something about walking where Jesus walked. There's something about standing in places that you've heard talked about, you've read about in the Bible. Maybe you heard the stories when you were in Sunday school. And one of the places that we will go is a place called the Garden Tomb. And it's interesting, it's in a garden and it's a tomb. But what's interesting about it is when this tomb was discovered, it was empty. Uh, now, what really is intriguing about that whole scenario is that about 100 yards, no more than 100, 150 yards is this place. Let me show you the next place. What's that look like? Looks like a skull, doesn't it? And you may remember that if you read the Gospels that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified on a place called Golgotha, which was the place of the skull. I've been all over Jerusalem. I've never seen that anywhere else. But what really is significant is this is what John said in John chapter 19, verse 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, Golgotha, the place of the skull, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb 
in which no one had ever been laid. And then he says this, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now I share that with you because I'm telling you in a moment like that, when you are in Jerusalem, you are standing staring at a tomb, even walking around inside of a tomb that is just a few yards where very possibly, probably where Jesus was actually crucified. See, this no longer feels like fiction. It no longer feels like a fairy tale. It no longer feels like some magical story that you heard in Sunday school as a kid. All of a sudden, you know, it, it feels more historical. All of a sudden, you're thinking, wow, this feels like an event that really happened. And I say that because I want you to understand this weekend, regardless of what you think about church, regardless of what you think about religion, when you come to church on Easter, it's not a celebration of the life of Jesus. It's not a celebration of the teaching of Jesus. We are celebrating as Christians an event in history that we believe actually happened. In fact, as Christians, we believe that on that first Easter that a person came back to life and walked out of the tomb. Now, I tell you that because that means that Easter is a lot better than just religion. In fact, Easter really has nothing to do with religion at all. Let me tell you why I say that. Most religions, if you've really studied religions, and if you go to seminary and cemetery, I call it, but if you go to any of those things, they make you do these things. And uh, if you study religion, you will discover that most religions were born or they came about in an attempt to explain the unexplainable. There were things in, in, in the universe, things in culture that people couldn't explain. So they, they, they would come up with a religion. For example, uh, thousands of years ago, people would go outside and they'd see a, a flash of lightning in the sky followed by a loud noise, a boom. And they had no idea what was going on. So they came up with the idea, well, it must be a God. We will call him Zeus. He's the one who's responsible for lightning. But eventually, later on, scientists came along and discovered high-pressure weather systems and low-pressure weather systems. And they concluded, wow, it really has nothing to do with a god named Zeus. It really has to do with two weather systems colliding. And the people of the day were like, so it's not Zeus? Like, nah, it's not Zeus, just weather systems. Or here's another example. Thousands of years ago, people would have kids, and just like today, they're cute and perfect and adorable and lovable, and they smell good. We got a two-week-old grandson. We kept him yesterday. You just, you just want to smell him, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you, they're just perfect, right? So lovable. But then after about 12 years, 13 years or so, that kid all of a sudden becomes moody <laughs> and argumentative and unbearable and evil and, let's face it, smelly, right? <laughs> and thousands of years, parents would say, wow. They must have a demon. That's the only way you can explain this transformation. So they would get the neighborhood witch doctor or shaman to come in, you know, to get rid of the demon, right? But then scientists came along, and guess what they discovered? They discovered something called hormones. So like, hey, hey, good news, good news. Your kid is not demon-possessed. Like, oh, man, what's the bad news? They're a teenager. They're a teenager. And the parents were like, so we don't need a witch doctor? Nah. They could probably use a spanking or two. You know, if that doesn't work, take away their cell phones. But my point is simply this. Science would come along and dismantle religious ideas because religion was often man's attempt to explain the unexplainable. Religion is also man's attempt to answer questions that are unanswerable. For example, what happens when I die? Will I see my loved ones again? What's the purpose of life? By the way, next week we're starting a brand new series called Explore God. And it's unique because we're going to be doing this series with over the 50 churches in the triangle. We're banding together to do this, 50 churches in 14 different cities. And for the next five weeks, these are the questions we're answering. First of all, next week, is there a God? Everybody wants to know the answer to that question. Is there a God? How do we know there's a God? Second, if there is a God, why in the world is there so much pain and suffering around us? 
We want to know the answer to that question. Why is Christianity the only way? Third week. Fourth week. Is the Bible true? Is it reliable? How can I know God personally? That's how we'll wrap up the series. But you got to understand, these are big, often unanswerable questions. And these are the kind of questions, I'm telling you, they are fertile grounds for religious to pop up and to begin to grow. And because, see, there's something true of every one of us that's here this weekend. We don't like the answer, nobody knows. Do we live after we die? Nobody knows. Does this happen? Nobody knows. For example, if you, get, if you get a bunch of symptoms and you go to the doctor and he runs some tests and he calls you back in and he says, hey, I just want you to know you have this disease. What's your next question? Well, what are we going to do about it? What's the answer? What's the cure? So you don't want to hear your doctor say, nobody knows. You're going to go find somebody that knows. And they, let's be honest, they may have the wackiest answer in the world. I mean, they may say, you know what? You got to get some essential oils. I think that's the voodoo of the 21st century. Sorry, ladies. But anyway, I came home the other night. I laid in bed. I'm going, ha, ha, ha. I said, what is that? Laura said, I put, I put lilac on your pillow. I'm like, you're killing me. You're trying to kill me. The change pillowcases. Yeah, that really helped me a lot, right? You could go to the person. They could say, you got to put some lilac in your left ear, and you got to hop up and down on your right foot for 15 minutes. And if you do that, we'll do it. You know why? We will do the goofiest, most ridiculous things in the world when we're looking for answers. And in the same way, that's what drives a lot of religions. But see, that's why Easter is so non-religious. It's because Easter isn't about trying to explain the unexplainable. Easter is about an event that happened 2,000 years ago. And that makes it very, very unique. But there's another thing that really makes Easter unique when you think about it. If you've read the Bible, you don't find Jesus' followers holding hands outside the tomb three days after the death of Jesus going, 10, 9, 8, 7, you know, with welcome back banners. You don't see that going on. In fact, after Jesus was crucified, by their own accounts, these are his disciples. You know what they said? Wow, we were losers. We scattered like rats on a sinking ship. We bailed. They wrote about it. They later wrote the Gospels. By the way, no revisionist history there. They were honest about it. See, if I'd have written it, I would have changed it. If I was the disciple, I'd say, I just want you to know, I, all along, I expected it to happen. I was outside the tomb, welcome back sign, had a change of clothes for Jesus, and dinner reservations. Right, we, we, see, I would do, not these guys, they said, we were losers. We thought we were going to be next. We headed for the hills. Now, this is what's interesting. Even after they heard through the grapevine that the tomb was empty, these are his disciples. Do you know what their response was? Really? Wow. I wonder how that happened. I mean, these guys had no clue whatsoever until Jesus appeared to them. And then all of a sudden, everything changed. And these cowards who by their own admission were afraid for their own lives, who thought we're next, these men and women all of a sudden became bold spokespeople. Well, what I want you to see is that the message that they proclaimed didn't focus on the teachings of Jesus. A lot of people have lived that have been great teachers. It didn't focus on the death of Jesus. A lot of people have died for what they believed. A lot of people have even been crucified, if you read your history, for what they believed. Their message centered, it focused on the resurrection of Jesus. And you know what? Once Jesus came back from the dead, you could not shut them up. They were unstoppable. In fact, I want to show you an interesting story if you have a Bible. Acts chapter 3 describes what I'm talking about. If you don't, that's okay. We're going to put the verses up on the screen this weekend. 
And as I work my way through this story, we'll zip through it rather quickly. I want you to listen to the details. In fact, one of the reasons that you probably, whether you read it or not, you should take the Bible seriously is because of all of the details that are provided in the Bible that if you do your research, you will discover that they are historically accurate. And we have these details in the Bible because the Bible was written by people who actually witnessed these events take place. Let me show you one of these stories. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. It says, one day, two of our favorites, Peter and John, were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Now, by the way, the temple, I got a picture the last time I was in Jerusalem. That's outside the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. It's never been rebuilt. You often wonder why people go to that wall to pray because that is about as close as you could get where the Holy of Holies would have originally been where God's presence resided inside the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. That's as close as they can get. So that's why they would go. But that's me outside the very temple that they're talking about here in Acts chapter 3. So they were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth, we'll find out later on, he's, he's been lame for over 40 years, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. Real place, we'll visit it in a few weeks where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Now, why was he expecting to get something from them? Well, it's simply because nobody engages a beggar in conversation unless you're planning on giving them something. I mean, if you get off the off-ramp and the beggar's there with their sign, one of two things are gonna happen. You're gonna reach for your wallet, or you're gonna make sure you don't make eye contact, right? So they engage this guy in a conversation, so he's expecting something, and it says in verse six, then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, understand, when the crowd hanging around the temple that day heard Peter say, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they knew exactly who they was talking about. Verse seven, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God, which I will tell you, I can assure you, that is very unusual behavior in a Jewish temple on any day, okay? There's not a whole lot of walking and jumping going on, right? Verse nine. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him. Hey, that's Bill. That's Bill. From, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, obviously, they've seen Bill sitting out there every day. They've given him money. So they're blown away by what's happening. And they're like, how did this happen? What's happened to Bill? We've watched him for 40 years. We've given him money every week. What is going on? Verse 11. While the man held to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. Real place, you know, you can visit it. And then, of course, they want to know what's happened. So Peter takes this opportunity here to preach a little message. Verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. Now notice this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. In other words, Peter's saying, I want to make one thing clear. This isn't some new religion. We're not starting some new cult, some new fad. This is the same God we've always worshipped. This is the same God that we've sacrificed animals to in this temple for years. Verse 13. <clears throat> the God of Abraham... 
Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. And you would probably expect him to say something like, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, who taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and launch into the Lord's prayer, but he doesn't do that. Or, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, to taught us to love our enemies as we love ourselves, but he doesn't do that. Or maybe, maybe the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, who said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the earth, and maybe launch into the Beatitudes. He doesn't do that. I mean, when you think about it, Peter could have gone in a hundred different directions. He could have focused on any of the great things that Jesus had taught. He could have focused on any of the miracles that Jesus performed. He doesn't do that. He goes right to the event that is the make or break event. For everything that we believe as Christians, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. I love this part. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer, remember Barabbas, be released to you. You killed the author of life. Not exactly the way to win friends and influence people, right? You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and don't miss the next part, and we are witnesses of this. In other words, Peter's message was this. We're not simply followers of Jesus. We are witnesses of his resurrection. We're not men who simply bought into his teaching. We were not men, we're not men who were just simply moved by his moral example. We are followers of Jesus because we saw him die, we saw him buried, and then we saw him, talked with him, ate with him, hung out with him after he rose from the dead. Now, keep in mind, this happened within walking distance of the place of the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. This happened within weeks of when the resurrection actually took place in Jerusalem. And think about it, these were the same men who scattered like a bunch of cowards when Jesus was crucified, but now they're bold and they're courageous, but their boldness and their courage isn't because of the teachings of Jesus. It was based on the event that we're here celebrating this weekend. Now later, later that day, the story continued in chapter four, verse one of Acts. The priests and the captain of the temple guards and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, here it is, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, as you're thinking through processing this whole thing, did the resurrection really occur? Here's an interesting side note. If you read the Gospels, if you read the book of Acts, you read Romans, every time these guys talked about the resurrection, they either got thrown into jail, they got stoned, they got beaten up, or they got run out of town. They were not being invited to appear on CNN. Nobody was offering them book deals. Every time they brought up the resurrection, something bad happened to these guys. And I don't know about you, but usually when something bad happens to me after I do something, I stop doing that something, right? Not these guys, they just keep plowing forward. It says in verse three, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message, what message? The message of the resurrection, believed 
And the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now that didn't include their families. <clears throat> so 5,000 men and some of their wives and children, so maybe 8, 10, 12,000 people embraced the truth of the resurrection. Think about this. In the city where it happened, just a few weeks after it happened. And it wasn't because they believed that Jesus was a great teacher or a great leader. It was because they believed that Jesus really was the resurrected Savior of the world. Now, see, that's powerful. That that's explains something that's unexplainable. And again, it has absolutely nothing to do with religion. It's got everything to do with history. And the story concludes in chapter 4, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Now, I want you again, listen to the detail. Luke wrote the book of Acts, the same one who wrote the book of Luke. Listen to the detail. He's almost like saying, I dare you just to check it out. I mean, you can go home this weekend. You can Google these names. These are real historical people. Chapter 4, verse 5. The next day, the rulers and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas. We talked about him a few weeks ago. John and Alexander, other members of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? And when they're asking, by what power did you do this, they're talking about the healing of the lame man. Trust me, they don't want to talk about the resurrection. They want to change the subject. They want to know whose power they leveraged for this random act of kindness. They want to know, how did you possibly pull this off? Verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed? In other words, if you want to know how we pulled off a random act of kindness, let us try to explain to you what happened. Verse 10, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, Peter's like, did I mention that? Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now let me just say something here. For those of you who get frustrated with Christians because we believe that our way is the only way. For those of you who get frustrated with Christians because uh, from your perspective, we just can't seem to be more open-minded and inclusive. For those of you who get frustrated with Christians because, you know, we're not content just to love one another and to forgive one another and to go to church and, and pray and, and read our Bible and just kind of keep it all to ourselves. Understand, this next verse that I'm going to show you is why we are the way we are and it's why we believe what we believe. So here it is, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. And I know what you're thinking, but Mike, that's what bothers me about Christianity. It's so narrow. And I think Peter would respond, well, hang on. Let me finish the sentence. Verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no name other, there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now here's Peter's point. The reason we can't shut up, the reason we can't stop talking about Jesus and his resurrection is simply this. Nobody's ever done it before. And I think what he was implying here, now if you know someone who has actually predicted their own death and resurrection and then pulled it off, man, give us their name. We would love to meet them. I mean, we may put our faith in that guy too. Because we would like to be resurrected from the dead. And we would like to know what happens after we die. And we would like to know if we're gonna see our loved ones again. But see, no one has else other than Jesus Christ has never given us that confidence. 
No one else who has ever lived has ever predicted their death and resurrection and pulled it off except Jesus. So consequently, there's no other name in heaven or on earth by which we can have confidence in the fact that we can have a relationship with God other than Jesus. And that's why we can't stop talking about it. He's one of a kind. He's in a category all by himself. There is no other name that brings with it the promise and the assurance other than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Verse 21, after further threats, what are you going to do? They let him go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. They're like, guys, what are we going to do? Bill is walking around. We can't unring that bell. Let's threaten them. Let's let him go. Now, notice how they responded to the threat, verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Do you know why that statement's so amazing? <clears throat> These same guys that hid after the death of Jesus, thinking that they were going to be next, I want you to think about this for a second. They spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the message of the resurrection. In fact, if you do the study yourself, you will discover that most of these followers died, not for what they believed. They died for what they had seen and heard and witnessed. Let me tell you how they died. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia with a sword. Mark died in Egypt after being drugged through the streets of the city of Alexandria by a horse until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece for preaching. Peter, remember Peter? Peter was actually arrested, put in prison in Rome. You can go to the prison in Rome where Peter was held with his wife. One day they brought them both out to the place of execution. Peter thought they were going to both be executed. They made him stand and watch as they executed his wife. They took him back to his cell. Made him spend the next few hours thinking about it. The next morning they took him out to crucify him. Peter says, I am not even worthy to die like my Savior Jesus Christ. And after asking, they allowed him to be crucified upside down. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown off the, the pinnacle of the temple. It was about 100 feet high. He fell. He didn't kill him, and so they clubbed him to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Bartholomew, and also Nathaniel, he was a missionary in Asia. Now we know it as Turkey. He was killed. He was beat to death with a whip for preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Andrew was crucified after being whipped by seven soldiers, and he hung on the cross two days until he died. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear while preaching in India. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he wouldn't deny his faith. Matthias, he's the one who took Judas's position after Judas hung himself. He was stoned and then he was beheaded. Paul was tortured and then beheaded by Emperor Nero. The only one that wasn't executed was John. He, they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him to death and he didn't die, so they banished him to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote, later wrote the book of Revelation. What happened? See, if this is a hoax, if they made this thing up, I'm telling you, if it, I'm, I'm a disciple, when they're willing me in the Colosseum to feed me to the lions, I'm singing like a canary. I'm not dying for something that I don't believe, right? Well, it wasn't what they believed. It's what they had seen. And it changed everything. And that's why I say that Easter isn't about religion. It's about an event. It's about an event that changed everything. Now, here's the good news. Did you know that the very... The very same invitation that Peter offered the crowd that day in the temple, this very same invitation to which 5,000 men plus their families responded by saying, 
We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that rose from the dead. Did you know that same invitation has been extended to people for over 2,000 years, just like me and you, all over the world? And just as there was a radical change in the lives of those 5,000 people in Jerusalem, and just as there was a radical change in the lives of the apostles, I'm telling you, there can be a radical change in your life too. And so every Easter, we end our celebration by doing the only thing that makes sense for us to do, and it's just simply give those of you who have never put your trust in Jesus an opportunity to do that. And it's because, see, we believe that, and again, as, as exclusive and narrow as it may seem to you, we as Christians believe that there is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which a person can have assurance of the possibility of reconnecting with God, having your sins forgiven so you can be restored back into a relationship with God. Jesus Christ died on the cross to make it all possible, and then he rose from the dead to verify and validate, I am the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So as we close, I simply want to give you the opportunity to transfer your trust because that's what becoming a Christian really is. It's saying, you know what? I'm no longer trusting in my good works. I'm no longer trusting in my good deeds. I'm no longer trusting in my church attendance, my prayer, my giving. I'm no longer trusting in my baptism for my salvation. I am, trust, I am transferring all of my trust from myself to the person of Jesus Christ. And understand by transferring your trust to Jesus, that's how you find eternal life. That's how you find purpose and meaning in this life. That's how you can have the assurance of God's love in your life regardless of what's going on in your life. It's the exact same invitation that Peter extended 2,000 years ago. It's the same invitation that's been changing lives ever since. So before I let you go, I'm gonna just ask everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes and I'm just gonna lead you in a prayer, you can say it out loud, you can say it in your heart, it's up to you. This prayer does not make you a Christian. There's nothing magical about this prayer. This prayer is simply an expression of faith by which you tell God, God, today's the day. Today's the day I'm transferring my trust from myself to Jesus Christ, my Savior. Would you pray this after me? Dear God, I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe that when he died, he died for the sins of the world. And I believe he died for my sins. I believe that he is the savior of the world. And I receive him right now as my savior. I tr transfer all of my trust to him. I'm no longer trusting in my background my church attendance, my baptism, my good deeds. I am putting my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Please accept me into your family right now. Not based on my efforts, not even based on this prayer, but based on my faith in what Jesus did for me. Thank you for forgiving and accepting me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you. Thank you.
thank you that you made this so simple. And Father, it's not exclusive. It's available to everyone. We're told that you're not willing and desires that any perish, but all come to repentance. You passionately desire a relationship with us. Even when we wanted nothing to do with you. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, wanted nothing to do with you, God. You, you said, you know what? I'm going to send my son. He's going to be your savior. And if you'll accept what he does on your behalf, you can be reconciled into a relationship with me. You will have eternal life. You will have purpose and meaning and power to be the person I created you to be. It's the greatest offer ever been offered to mankind. Father, thank you for that. I thank you for those who responded today by placing their trust in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are still struggling, wondering, I'm not sure. I pray that they will at least explore this and maybe come back next week when we talk about, is there a God? Why is there pain and suffering? Why is Jesus the only way? Can I even believe the Bible? Can I really know God personally? And help us to realize, Father, there's this, there's this God-sized void in our lives that we're searching drastically to find something relentlessly to fill it that only you're going to fill. Help us to come to that conclusion. And I give you the glory now, Father, the praise for what you're going to do in all of our lives. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you welcome those into the family of God that...